short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Hello, Obrad. How do you pronounce it? Obrad. Obrad. Welcome to the the show, Obrad. Thank you very much. Yeah, I noticed your Scottish uh, pronunciation of (laughs) Obrad. Well, it's probably more Italian because I'm learning Italian at the moment, so I'm used to rolling my R's. Right. Yeah. Ragazzo. Il ragazzo, the boy, la ragazza, the girl. <clears throat> so um, tell me about yourself. What's your story? Okay, uh, where shall I start? Um, I'll, I'll put it in the context of, you know, your Cold War uh, mini-series about Marshal Tito. Mm-hmm. So um, I was in the... Um, armed forces in the former Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. So as a member of the armed forces, I had to uh, make a pledge to the marshal that I will be protecting the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia. How's that going? Well, I think history has told already how successful we were with that. Um, and what I year did you join um, the armed forces? I became professional in 1982, but I um, I was in the Air Force, and um, like many kids, I basically wanted to fly, and I wanted to fly something fast. And um, you know, as one of my colleagues said once. If I ever thought that there would be a war, I would certainly not be in the Air Force. Um, so no one really thought there would be a war. And the least of which um, there would be a civil war. So when we were talking about protecting the sovereignty and the, and the territorial integrity of the country, we were always thinking we might be attacked by um, NATO from one side or the Warsaw Pact uh, from the other side. So all our preparations were, and all our military doctrine or the doctrine of, I don't know how to translate it to English, but um, there was a doctrine of like people protecting their own country. So we, um, the Yugoslavia was um, because conscription was compulsory over there. So all the people had been trained um, militarily. So um, every 
young person over the age of 18 would have at least a year of military training and service. So the idea was um, that you can mobilize uh, several million people at short notice and, uh, and arm them sufficiently to be able to protect the country. And obviously that created a lot of arms within the country that, um, you know, when it all started falling apart, was used yeah. among the people, uh, mm. one against the other. Mm. And, but by, yeah. So by the time you were a professional, 1982, Tito was dead. Yeah, true. But I, I made my pledge in my first year of the Air Force Academy while he was still alive. Right. And, and it didn't really matter. I mean, even, um, I don't know um, whether you followed, you know, and, and maybe you will, I don't know when you're going to finish that series, but um, even several years after he died, uh, politicians in, in Yugoslavia were still, um, you know, making pledges, you know, that they're continuing his legacy and everything else. And uh, I remember one of the politicians criticizing the now notorious Slobodan Milosevic, who was, um, you know, rise, ri rising to prominence in Serbia after Tito's death. And he was criticized once for making a public speech and apparently he mentioned it only three times in half an hour speech and that was you know like a, hmm, this guy is not committed you know uh, to the legacy of the marshal and you know this was happening several years after tito's death so well, you know, that reminds me of two things. I mean, uh, in our Caesar series, all we're up to Claudius and all of the emperors after Augustus swear themselves and the Senate swear themselves every year to uphold the edicts of Augustus. And, you know, this is decades after he died. And of course, in the United States, they mm. still talk about what the founding fathers wanted for the country 250 years later. So, you know, it's there you are. Tito, Tito was the founding father of Yugoslavia. And uh, so, you know, it's the American precedent is there. So, yeah, if he, I suppose if he managed to keep the country alive, we would yeah. have still probably um, be making pledges. And to be honest, from my personal perspective, I think we would have been better off. I think there would be at least 100,000 people more alive in the country. Mm. So, so uh, today you're in Sydney? I'm in, in Canberra. Canberra. And what do you, mm. and how long, when, when did you come to Australia and what do you do with yourself now uh, in Canberra? Uh, came here 2013 from New Zealand. I was in New Zealand um, nearly 20 years. So I left uh, what was remaining of Yugoslavia in 1994 in and I went to New Zealand. And to be honest, um, at the time, I wasn't thinking of Australia as a, as a place to live in at all. 
because um, I, I wanted to go as far away from um, you know what happened over there and uh, didn't really want to have anything to do with anyone from former Yugoslavia and I knew that here in Australia there were strong national groups you know and, and we heard of clashes in between Croats and, and Serbian Serbs and Macedonians those are I think the three major groups um, most of them emigrated after the Second World War um, and you know I think you here had some very active um, uh, Croatian nationalists who were even um, training terrorists and sending them back to Yugoslavia. Mm. Um, so I said, nah, I, I don't want any of that. So my plan was to go to New Zealand, change my name so that no one can guess where I came from and just leave it all behind. That was the plan. But I didn't change my name. And uh, yeah, so... Um, how I came here, I work in aviation, surprise, surprise, <laughs> and uh, I work for Air Services Australia now, um, they had an opening and um, the job description fitted my profile, so. It was wanted, uh, former, you know, air yeah, yeah. specialist for Marshall Tito. <laughs> Former MiG-21 pilot, um, yeah, with a bit of a New Zealand experience. MiG-21s. Wow. Yeah. And 29s. Wow. So you were, uh, you were a Top Gun. Yeah, I suppose. Fighter pilot. I was. Wow. But um, so you were there during the the civil war in the early nineties. Yeah, um, I was lucky because by the time the civil war started, I wasn't um, flying fighter jets anymore. I was flying Learjet, Learjet twenty five, and uh, I actually had the privilege of being in the crew. Um, that transported our last president of the um, presidency of Yugoslavia. I don't know whether you know, but after Tito died, we had the presidency of, I think it was nine members, <clears throat> each republic, plus we had two territories. And I don't know whether you can sense any similarity between the Commonwealth of Australia. Um, two, six states and um, two territories and I think nine member may have been um, the um, secretary of the communist party which we didn't call party we called it assembly of communists of Yugoslavia I don't know whether that's how they officially were translating but you know or maybe a, a association of communists of, of Yugoslavia anyway um I think when they had the last um, session, it was um, already after Slovenia, um, already re rebelled against the federal rule and there was clash with the, with the army. 
first with the federal police, then with the army, and it kind of finished fairly quickly. And the presidency decided um, that um, Yugoslav People's Army will withdraw from Slovenia, and Slovenia will get some kind of status where they were. Can't remember now how they called it, but you know, basically, they were allowed to secede, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, after that session, the steeper message who was the president of the presidency and Janis Drnovšek, who was a Slovenian member, they were going back home. And it was in the middle of the night, and I was. Um, flying the airplane that they actually, you know, we took them back uh, message to Zagreb and, and Drnošek to Ljubljana. And um, I remember one of my mates from the, <clears throat> from the fighter squadron, because we were in the same base in Belgrade. Um, he came to me as we were waiting and you know he heard someone somehow that we are waiting for members of the presidency especially message message was very unpopular among um i suppose us who were interested in keeping yugoslavia because he he said i think when he came became the president of the presidency that he will be the last president of yugoslavia because he's he claimed his um, objective and his role was to, you know, make an end to that country. So, so one of my mates, he came over and he said, uh, because we were all, um, we were armed. We had our personal guns with us at that time because it was kind of semi-war state already. And he said, well, you have to shoot the bastard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I said to him, look, and because he was, um, his role then was to actually be um, on alert and uh, be ready to uh, take off and intercept whatever. And I said to him, look, I can, I, I'm not going to do it, you know, uh, but if you, if you feel so strongly about it, um, you know, I'll call you when we are ready for takeoff. You intercept us and shoot us down, you know, become a hero. And obviously, none of that happened. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting time. Good plot for a film, though. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's go back. So if you uh, became a professional uh, fighter pilot in 1982, I'm assuming you were born around about 1960? 1960, yeah. Yeah. So you're 10 years older than me, which means you're 60 or yep. about to turn 60. Turned, turned in January. Happy, happy yeah. birthday! Um, <laughs> Thank you. So you were born fifteen years, roughly, into Tito's uh, Republic of Yugoslavia. Tell me what life was like. Where did you grow up? What part of the country? Well, most of my life, I lived in in Belgrade or Belgrade, as it's known here, capital city. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so, so tell me what it was like growing up in Belgrade in the, you know, the sixties and seventies. Well, I suppose when you, when you think of, you know, your childhood days, 
it's always fond memories, you know, when you're looking from a distance. So the way I'm looking at it is uh, we never, you know, the country was never rich or certainly wasn't then and, and for years after that. But uh, we seem to have had everything that we needed. And, and the life was uh, relatively simple. For some reason, I lost. Oh. Can you hear me still? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, just a second, because my computer decided to uh, put the screensaver on. So I have to log in. Okay. Um, so one of the things um, that uh, everyone was quite proud of and, and happy about is, for example, that we had absolute freedom of, of movement, both within the country and going abroad. So um, Yugoslavian passport was considered a valuable asset. And, um, uh, you know, some people say it was, uh, you know, sought after on, on the black market, you know. Um, so people had to be very careful not to lose one because, um, you know, people, uh, you know, there, were, there was a market for it. And... Um, because it opened so many doors at that time. Uh, not that we could travel extensively because, um, you know, it, it was expensive. But um, for young people, although it didn't happen to me, but, you know, my older brother, for example, and he was um, a student, he and his mates and many, many other uh, would travel all across Europe uh, using interrail, you know, cheap, ticket that, that was available to the to the youth um, you know, with which you could travel <clears throat> in all across all Western Europe on on one ticket on on rail railway system so and many people <clears throat> use that to to go and, and you know visit countries and maybe go to UK and um, pick up strawberries and you know, stuff like that, earn some money, you know, spend some time, buy some uh, records, you know, the, the vinyl stuff and, and, you know, rock and roll and um, that, you know, and bring back. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, generally speaking, um, I think life was, it was good. I spoke to those um, two young guys from Ljubljana the other day, uh, which mm -hmm. I haven't put out yet, but I'll probably have put that out by the time I put this out. But, you know, they're 20 and studying international relations at university there and very political, um, fairly uh, left, I think, by the sounds of it. They were quoting Chomsky to me and uh, various people, so they seemed fairly well uh, read. But they were saying the perspective that they have grown up with is that um, at least during the years of the Republic, most people uh, had work. Most people had access to the basics of life, uh, you know, healthcare, education, um, that life was, wasn't glamorous, but it was, it was okay. People were looked after to, uh, you know, a basic level. 
Um, mm. Whereas after the end of the Republic, these days it's become more doggy dog, people do without, unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. Oligarchs, they, I asked them if it was like Russia, where you know the wealth is concentrated in the hands of a group of oligarchs, etc. They said it's yeah, a little bit. It's not it's not quite that bad, but a little bit of that has happened. But I'm trying to get a perspective of what it was like from somebody who was old enough to uh, remember during the later period of the Republic. Was it um, um, uh, was there a feeling of general oppression? in the air or was it just uh, life was okay unless you got on the wrong side of the the secret police yeah. unless you were considered <laughs> to be a dissident yeah that, that's that's an interesting um thing which um you know certain things about um the country and the life in general um you only learn, I suppose, later, and, you know, with the, with the hindsight, because I wasn't very interested in, in politics or anything. I was a um, technically minded person, you know. So for me, mathematics, physics, those were the things that I couldn't understand and appreciate. Sociology, philosophy were, were things that I had to pass um because it was part of the curriculum but i never liked it because it was non-exact um you know and lots of things to learn by heart and i, I just didn't like that um likewise um the interesting thing was obviously uh, the communist party was um how to say it was used in a way the the um organized religion is used in in other countries okay it is used to control um the minds of people and like a just extended arm of, of the of the rulers basically um so from that perspective there was a, um, a very strong push to for many young um capable people to join the ranks of the party and then you know to um, kind of strengthen that party base so i remember when i was in high school and, and mind you i went to call it uh, military sponsored um, high school which was called aeronautical um, college or high school marshal tito um, it was based in Mostar, and it was uh, basically a, like a track towards becoming Air Force pilot. So you, you go there, and from there you go to the Air Force Academy if you're successful. So, for example, when I was, um, it was year three of the high school, that's 16 years of age over there, um, they started enrolling people into communist party so that was like the the um the threshold um the age threshold and of course um the uh, the people the, the students um with good academic record assuming that they're also um they have all the attributes of a proper communist you know being a, a good friend and supportive and all that kind of thing 
so they get nominated um, and all the I think um, teaching personnel staff they were members or supposed to be or majority of them so anyway so you 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 uh, basically get nominated invited it's an invitation that you cannot refuse and, uh, and by the end of academy we all had to be members all right so that was one thing so we were kind of bred to uh, accept that as reality um, and i can't say that me or my mates or majority of them were really much interested again in either politics or being the members of the party or, or, or felt anything in particular about whether we are members or not. It was for us um, entry ticket to the cockpit of MiG-21. Um, mm. So, um, okay, I, I suppose this is a, just a lengthy um, intro to answering your, your, your real question. In terms of the oppression, uh, you yes, you didn't feel it unless you were perhaps a little bit more advanced, and usually those people would be um, students of uh, philosophy, um, you know the um, um, the arts, and 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 those would probably um, be more likely to find uh, problems with the system and with the you know the, the um, personality cult of of tito um the um single party system or i wouldn't i mean it doesn't really matter whether it's single party but you know it's you know the, the uh, concentration of power among a very narrow band of of people um that you know where the the uh, um, the population of the country cannot influence really who those people are. Um, so you know those things didn't really bother me when I was young. And the first time it started bothering me was, well, maybe I should say first, uh, uh, my mother, for example, um, it, when she was young, she was member of the communist youth. I think similar deal. You know, um, everyone was expected, especially at her time, she was born in 1930. So um, in 1948, she was 18 years. And I think she was very briefly member of that. And <clears throat> when um, Tito fell, fell um, away from Stalin in 1948, then there was a quite, uh, um, uh, you know, the Chistka, as the Russians were saying, similar to Stalin type, uh, cleaning up the ranks um, from suspicious elements and uh, potential traitors. And, and um, <laughs> my mother being a, a Hungarian from Serbia, she didn't even, keep, she couldn't even speak Serbian properly. You know, when she was 18, she just, uh, finished high school and I think the primary whole primary school she did in Hungarian and I think she said something that was considered would would have been great maybe three months earlier when we were all good with Russia and, and, and Soviet Union but you know in the meantime um, that um, falling out happened and she was kicked out of and, and she never <laughs> returned uh 
and and she wasn't she probably was upset at the time as as a young girl um but kicked later, out of what the party oh, oh the uh, communist party youth the party right yeah yeah um so you know that happened people who were probably um considered more more dangerous than 18 year high school students um ended on um on one of the islands in the Adriatic called Goli Otok, um, which became almost like a Yugoslavian uh, mini gulag, um, mm. where all these political dissidents and, you know, probably predominantly people who just um, were not astute enough and quick enough to realize what was happening um, and just ended up on, on the wrong side of the equation or uh, even people who um, ended up there because um, they stepped on someone's toes and uh, it was very easy to be dobbed and, and end up again um, in, a, in a very difficult position. So I think, um, among the older people, maybe my, my parents' generation, uh, as I was growing up, probably they had that sense of you have to be careful what you're saying and not to be seen as, um, you know, rocking the boat and uh, challenging um, the setup uh, because otherwise, you know, something bad may happen. Um, I also... I remember when I was in the Air Force, um, and uh, <clears throat> um, all my uh, school years I was learning English, just happened that way. Um, in Yugoslavia, you could, depending on the luck of the draw, you, you know, the foreign language that you learn in school might be English, German, French, or Russian, right? Um, I think um, English w was, at least in Belgrade, I think the most prevalent at my time. Um, Russian would be second, and you know the others will be relatively rare. Um, but when I when I joined the Air Force, so it's 1982, um, people were still within the Air Force would say, "Ah, oh, you know, you you know English, and you're very good at with English." Yeah, and that makes you almost like pro-Western and slightly suspicious uh, because of that. Um, so, you know, if I, if I, if I would say uh, something like, I don't know, F-16 is better than, you know, MiG-20, whatever, it was like, hmm, you know, here he is pro-Western. Mm -hmm. um, but because I was, I, you know, I was a good student. I was a good officer. I always had a, um, you know, I was considered um, high achiever. So it wasn't ever taken against me seriously. But it was always there's a, like a little lingering side. The same, the same thing. I'm sure would have been true if. Uh, uh, if uh, one of Tom Cruise's, uh, uh, maybe Iceman, uh, could speak fluent Russian and kept saying good things about the MiGs, the same thing would have been yeah. true, right? In the middle of the Cold yeah. War, 
And, mm. and, you know, on either side of it, you if you weren't a straight-up, died-in-the-wall patriot, you were suspicious. Uh, so mm. I don't think that's a purely um, uh, Yugoslavian or Eastern border thing. Um, talk to me about um, the view of the West that was was dominant when you were growing up. Uh, was it like I think in the West, <clears throat> the <laughs> the way the Eastern, uh, like the the Soviet or, or communist mindset of the West was portrayed to us in the West was that everyone was just uh, jealous of all the good things that we had in the West and couldn't wait to, um, you know, get across the border and get to the West and uh, get to the land of milk and honey. Uh, is, is that accurate? Is, is that uh, the sort of the view that everyone had of the West that uh, you were hard done by and you just wish you could have, you could snort cocaine and have girls in miniskirts uh, running around or <laughs> go to the disco? I don't know. What, what, was, what was the view like? Yeah. Um, well, let, let's put it this way. Um, the West was certainly more attractive than the East because we, we knew how the um, Soviet Union looked like, although I have never been, um, and, and the whole Eastern Bloc. So because um, Hungarians were part of the Eastern Bloc, uh, Polish, uh, Czechoslovakians, they... I think had there was some kind of bilateral agreement in between Yugoslavia and those countries. So these people can actually get some special permit and travel um, to Yugoslavia, and usually they will go to the Adriatic coast. And and we always looked at them as you know like poor um, cousins almost, and uh, and and reflection of the life in uh, in, in the um, Soviet bloc. Uh, with all the you know restrictions and oppression, and, and and regularly also those people try to, some of those would be trying to um, cross the border uh, on the wrong side at the end of the holidays, and and some of them would even die um, drowning in in rivers that they would try to cross illegally and things like that. So Russians were also coming, and um, some of my relatives on mother's side who lived close to Hungarian border. Um, they were saying, you know, they were laughing at Russians um, who would come just cross the border from Hungary and go, they say, in the, in the shoe shop and just start buying whatever, you know, without trying, doesn't matter, just, you know, whatever they can afford, as many, because um, apparently they would go back to Russia. It doesn't really matter um what you have any goods you can trade for what you actually need uh, because mm -hmm. russia didn't have any of this so we, we certainly were not uh there was nothing on the eastern side for us to look up to because mm. we we felt that we had a lot more in our country 
Um, so mm. we had, as I said, we had our freedoms. We had, um, we could get some imported goods. Although in 70s, I remember um, having Levi's jeans. That was a big thing. Mm -hmm. So you had to actually go to Italy, to Trieste, which was supposed to be ours, um, mm -hmm. if, if Tito had his way. Um, mm -hmm. But Trieste became a, a, like a synonym for shopping because that's where that, that's the closest thing um, that we could go to and, and, and get, you know, that kind of thing, Levi's jeans um, and, and things like that. So, um, yeah. Um, as those young guys that you talked to said, you know, it wasn't a uh, um, uh, fleshy life, but it was, it was nice. You know, mm -hmm. we had what we needed. Um, mm. And, you know, my first car I bought, I can't remember, several years after I started working as a pilot. So I could afford, but I just didn't feel a need for it because the public transport is such that you could go wherever you wanted. Um, and I, I was spending my money on other things that I consider more important, skiing gear and scuba gear and then stuff like that. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that was all affordable. I was, I was going, every winter I would be going skiing, every summer I would be spending a month on Adriatic, um, which is one of the, most beautiful parts of the Mediterranean. So life was good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. So in retrospect, um, you know, the, the Republic obviously uh, not only crumbled within a decade of Tito's passing, but it turned into a horribly brutal civil war um do you think that uh that would have happened earlier if it were not for tito mm. probably um there was a, um, in 70s, I think 1974 or thereabouts, there was a um, movement among the politicians in, in Croatia, for example, that, that started um, inflating, I think, the nationalistic sentiment among the Croatians. And again, I was 14 at the time or, or younger. So I don't really remember any of that happening in real time. I, I only read about it later. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it, they were basically quashed by, by Tito, um, you know, and, you know, expelled from the party because every politician had to be a member of the party. So, you know, um, probably some people ended in prison. I think even the, the president Tujman, who, who used to be a general in the, in the army, um, he spent some time in jail for something, some similar offense where he was, um, 
um, probably downplaying the uh, the atrocities of uh, Ustasha in the Second World War, and um, you know, um, uh, probably also trying to uh, fuel a bit um, Croatian nationalism, and um, which was nationalism was a big no-no in uh, under under Tito. So that was um, considered one of the biggest enemies. Not and, Yugoslav uh, nationalism, but Croatian nationalism, or any, Serbian, or, Serbian or any other. Yeah, 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 yeah. So nationalism was pretty much a dirty word, um, and and was to be fought, uh, you know, every step of the way, and you know, whenever it would um, uh, raise its head. Um, uh, brotherhood and um, unity. Unity. Mm. Yeah, uh, bratstvo i jedinstvo, as we said. Uh, that was a big thing. That that's mm. a, and, a, and a lot of effort has been put in 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 developing that. Uh, we had um, the thing that was called. I'm trying to translate, but it was like uh, work bees, um, where you would organize what we call brigades from mm. various parts of the youth brigades from various parts of the country. And then um, some site where some relatively larger civil works were, were happening, like um, building dikes along the river uh, mm -hmm. or you know, something where you can basically employ a lot of manual labor. Mm. Um, so they would collect they would organize um, like a youth camp, um, collect brigades from various parts of the country, young people, high school and, and students, uh, university students, they would get together, work during the day. And then in the afternoons, you would have um, performances, concerts organized by those same people among themselves. Um, and, you know, with the help of, uh, of people who were running the, the camp. So I went to two of those. It was a very nice place for young people to get together and to get to know people from different parts of the country and to learn about one another. So mm -hmm. that, that was that was going on for years and years and years after, after the war and um, into 80s and probably until um, Tito's death. Um, so I think many people were were happy. Um, people who grew up, you know, in, in parts of the country that were not particularly exposed to atrocities in the Second World War and people who had parents, I suppose, from mixed marriages, like, like my parents. Although I think it wasn't so much mixed marriage, probably con contributed but you know both my parents are from serbia but mother is hungarian serbian and father is serbian serbian um but you know they were probably uh, con relatively um progressive for their time you know getting married she was a catholic hungarian um oh. probably and, and my father was orthodox um, Serbian, although both of them had nothing to do with religion. My mother actually had a um, very traumatic experience. Um, her parents died when she was very young. And um, I think when, when mother died, 
they couldn't wake up or, or you know convince the um the um cler clergyman who was supposed to attend the funeral to come because they were very poor and he just couldn't be bothered and she it, it stayed with her for for life and she spoke about that so many times um how she you know she would never you know step into a catholic church in her life ever again um so you know coming from from such a background i i truly believe this i was growing up in in brotherhood and unity i believed in um yugoslavia i believed in many things um, i went to um that high school which was also um, gathering kids from all over the country um so i was away from it was in mostar in in bosnia and herzegovina and um and i thought everyone was pretty much the same um and it was the first shock that i an indication that we may not have the same views actually happened to me shortly after we graduated my first summer holiday and i went with a mate of mine very good mate of mine from uh, macedonia we were both in Bel based in belgrade at that time so we went to the adriatic but we decided to go through what what's called kraina i i don't know whether you know that's the part of croatia where serbian population lived until 92 or whenever the um, Oluya storm happened. Um, so so he, we, we decided to visit him. So he was with his um, relatives and, and from that part of the country, a very nice part of the country. So we stopped. We traveled all day in a, in a rickety car that we had at the time. And um, it was a arduous journey uh, because it was a slow car. Anyway, we got there finally, and he said, first question that he asks is, um, "Which way did you come to here?" Oh, it's a bit of fear there. And he said, "Ah, you went through the Tostasha village." And I was, "Beg your pardon? What do you mean?" He says, "Well, that village that you went through, it's Tostasha village. Everyone knows that." Everyone here knows that. What year was that? That, you know, they know in that part of the country, you know, which village belonged to, well, basically it's Croatians, and they, called, they, they would refer to them as Ustasha's, and the other village would be Serbian, and probably Croatians refer to them as Chetniks. Right. Um, so, so it wasn't is, actually wasn't actually run by the Ustasha at the time. No, it just no, right. no. It, it was just it's known how, as how the Ustasha. Colloquially, that's how they mm. colloquially referred mm. to one another. So this is 1982 mm -hmm. or three, mm. and and I was absolutely shocked. That some someone that I went to school with, you know, mm -hmm, and, and mm -hmm. you were, would say something like that. Mm, um, mm. So, well, I was talking to the young guys years and, later. Yeah, but I was talking to the young guys about this, like again, using the United States as an example. There are still people in the South in the United States who are still angry about their civil war. 
that happened 100 whatever 50 60 years yeah. ago like these sorts of um r- religious or or racial or territorial divisions get passed down generation after generation the the resentment and the anger particularly for the people who lost in many cases um these things don't die off uh, easily. We've seen that yeah, they're passed. all over the world. Passed on from generation to generation. You don't need to go further than Canberra. When I came here, and you know that we have this, um, it's called Multicultural Festival. Every year, I think it's in February in Canberra. Um, and it's, it's a great thing. You know, it, it goes for three days. Um, and you know you will have hundreds of um, stalls, different countries. Um, you know a lot of food, and people mainly go <laughs> for the food. But you know you can also see, hear the music, see the dances, and, and other things. But I, I was absolutely shocked when I went first year, and and there is a, a stand um, and. They have a banner Karlovačko Pivo, which is um, the beer brand from Croatia, full of young people in their 20s. In, inside, you know, they are serving that beer, and you know that's pretty much all that they have. Um, and they're in, in black shirts, and they're playing music from the independent um, state of Croatia. Um, you know about you know, um, Ustasha, you know, and I'm thinking, first of all, you know, for, for someone um, like me, um, having seen what happened and, and knowing what did happen in, in the in the first, in the second war, we had too many wars over there, you know, um, it, it was actually chilling to see that and to think, all those boys were born here. They don't even probably know, maybe, probably many of them haven't even been mm. to Croatia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but, you know, it is uh, passed on, obviously, from generation from the generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard to eliminate. Well, my father was Scottish, came to Australia in the late 60s. But at some point in his ancestry, the Rileys are Irish. I have never been to Ireland or Scotland, but I hate the British because (laughs) of what they did to the Irish. And (laughs) I don't even know any Irish people. (laughs) But deep down inside of me, I kind of fucking hate the British for what they did to (laughs) my ancestors hundreds of years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, you, you know, one, one thing that I, I I noticed so many times listening to you and Ray, and at one point in time, I, I almost wanted to to write to, to both of you. And when, when you talk about um, what the United States government, you know, I think it's mo- mostly a bullshit filter, or maybe also on the Cold War, but you know, it, it comes up very often, you know, you can't avoid it. Um, you know, the the U.S. government um, idea that they have to dominate the world and, you know, everything that they do. 
and uh, when when you're talking about some very bad examples of you know um, atrocities that happen here and there because of that and and ray would say talk about it uh, using um, the term us uh, so he's talking about what the u.s government is doing and he he um, disagrees with that but he's using the term us he basically unconsciously puts himself on the side of, of people you know um, responsible for those policies and, and acts and, and i think that's so easy to to fall into that us and them even when you when you don't think in those terms um i don't know what it is but the people you know, i suppose it's a natural human uh need to belong to a group and and once you identify yourself with a group it may be a nation you know maybe a state maybe party maybe something else football club um then we tend to even try to justify you know whatever your side is doing um yeah chrissy my wife and i talk about this a lot at home because you know i get this when <laughs> you get this from american tv and film and she verifies that this was her experience growing up there at a very early age you get tribalized um you put your hand on your heart and say the pledge of allegiance every day uh before school as a child uh then you you get to high school and you have your school's basketball team and football team and baseball team and they compete against other schools and you're expected to go out there and wave the flag and wave the banner and support your team and that goes through into college you have to support the college team then you get involved in politics you have to pick a side and you're you're either blue or you're red and you do or die right or die with one of these and it's been getting worse and worse and that wasn't my experience growing up in australia none of that until i moved to melbourne when i was 18 and discovered the football culture in melbourne and I remember when I first came across people in an office situation arguing about this AFL team versus that AFL team. And I thought they were just joking and taking the piss out of the whole thing. And somebody had to sit me down and go, no, no, this isn't, these this people, is fucking, this is, this is serious, man. Like they will, they will end up in blows over this which I found shocking. And, and I wonder how much of that has to do with the post-World War II immigration into Melbourne of Greeks and Italians and other people from around the Mediterranean who are, I think, a lot more passionate about these sorts of things than white uh, ex-British Australians are, who we really uh, don't get very passionate about much, you know, apart from mm. fishing and beer really it's about the only <laughs> things australians normally get too passionate about the beach going to the beach yeah and public holidays 
having as many of them as possible. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. But I think America is very, very tribalized and getting getting worse with every every ten years goes by. They're becoming more and more uh, tribalized, um, which is a strange phenomenon. So I, I, I get it from Ray's perspective, mm. but I, I agree with you. I think it's a yeah. I've got a friend of mine down in Melbourne, Peter Elliard, who um, we've worked on some projects and books and stuff over the years, but he talks about the rise of planetism with uh, the younger generations, how they don't identify with a, with a race or with a country. Um, yeah. He, he's talked about the progression over, you know, the last couple of thousand years from, you know, you belong to a tribe and then you belong to a, a region or a dookie or a feudal state or a king. And, with nationalism, you belong to a nation. He said the next level is you belong to the planet. You think in terms of planetary ideas. What is the right thing for the planet to be doing? What is the right thing for the species and other species? What you think more? You think literally globally. And um, I think he's right. I think the, the, there's a rising generation that I've certainly always mm-hmm. felt that way. And I think that. I think part of that came out of the Cold War. Growing up in the Cold War was, as a as a teenager, trying to come to terms with why the human race was on the brink of destruction. What what were we fighting? Why why was this pres this this um, threat of of global annihilation hanging over us? What brought us to this? point it didn't make a lot of sense as a kid you think well just fucking sort it out (laughs) what's what's this all about um anyway yeah i've always considered myself a planetist i guess which is why i arc up at patriotism and nationalism whether it's australians or americans equally it's like fuck off with that shit man like get over yourselves it's not that important if, if anything, I learned from um, the civil war in Yugoslavia, it's um, I was cured of patriotism. Mm. I, I I'm teaching my kids, you know, not to be patriotic or to um, I'm teaching them not to feel that they, they um, need to die for any country or any government. Um, mm. so, um, well, I suppose the, the thing that I'm trying to teach them above all is not to hate that, you know, if I, when I'm thinking if, if I would like one thing that my, my kids to, you know, take from me and remember and carry with them for the rest of the life, it's not to hate. And I, I don't even allow them to hate the dinner that you know, mom makes, you know, they can say they don't like it, but I don't want to hear hate because I I have seen so much hate um, destroying livelihood of so many people, Uh, you know, and it's hate is not good for the person hating and it's even worse for the person being hated. Um, So, yeah, and patriotism hate, hate leads yeah. to the dark side we all know that yeah so 
I think that's um, unfortunately, you know. How old are your kids, Obrad? Uh, I have five, and they range from uh, twenty-nine to nine. So, wow. two marriages like you. Well, yeah, you know, you you, three. you tried it twice. Three, <laughs> three, but you know, I, I I had a slow start with one. <laughs> And then right. uh, when I when I got into gear, the, another four came. Um, so yeah, that's um, I'm I'm trying to you know as you say, I want them to learn that you know the planet is finite finite um, and you know we can only survive on this planet together with the other inhabitants mm. um so you know there is no point in trying to grab more than than the next person mm. um, especially in the countries that we live in now like australia there is plenty for everyone mm. and, uh, and, and 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 when you look at the, at the global state of uh, material production there is enough for everyone actually mm. Uh, if you just knew how to to use it properly mm. for for the good of the planet and the people, um, and you know it's easy to say. And and sometimes I'm, I suppose my my wife and and probably my brother and many other people that I talk to more regularly, they they think I'm um, too unrealistic and idealistic and and maybe uh, too old and, and started losing my marbles. Um, when I'm talking about these things, but you know, I, I truly believe um, that this this is possible, and, and it may happen actually very quickly. You just need to have sufficient number of people educated about this and adopting this view mm -hmm. to be able to say to whatever government, uh, you know, when when they go with whatever aggressive politics and policies and moves they want to go to do you just say nah not interested mm. you want to fight with china go <laughs> i'm not going you know mm. Mm. government that cannot convince its people to mm -hmm. go into mm -hmm. war for them mm -hmm. Mm. cannot make war mm -hmm. it's as simple as mm. that oh well they have drones so and robots now so you know, they don't need people yeah, as much even, anymore. I know, but you still need someone in, in some control center to pull the levers and, and push the buttons and, and things like that. And if those people say, well, nah, stuff it. I'm not going to do this. Mm. It, it cannot happen. So call it civil disobedience. Uh -huh. I think that's the key. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. So I'm just looking at the clock. Let's let's um, wrap up with a couple of things. Um, number one, some of your final statements there make you sound like you're still a fan in theory of uh, socialism. What are your attitudes on socialism, having grown up in a socialist country and then lived in the West for decades and seen your country collapse um what are, your, what are your thoughts on socialism all right um 
let, let me first um, try to separate my idea of socialism from the um, how people interpret that as, as a way of governing a country. So, you know, our country was nominally socialistic republic of Yugoslavia. Um, and, you know, it's like people call um, Russia or Soviet Union, that, that, that was communism. And we know it wasn't. Um, it was, um, you know, just uh, communist. Communism was used as the ideology to justify pretty authoritarian rule that was established there. Obviously, there are there are various reasons why it, it turned up turned it, turned out that way. But um, socialism, if I look at it as as a, a system in which a distribution of those material goods produced um, by society uh, are used for the for the benefit of the society as a whole. Uh, so the distribution of of the wealth is done in in more equ equitable way. Of course, I am for socialism. Um, you know, who wouldn't be uh, unless you know we want well. I suppose uh, because many people in the capitalist world are conditioned to glorify, you know, the the uh, um, amassment of wealth, and mm -hmm. you know, um, you read about billionaire this and billionaire that, and, and we all have to aspire to that, and and you know, that's the the pinnacle of of achievement. Mm. Yes, we we have been conditioned that way, and you know, many young people believe, yep, that that's it. You know, when I make a million or billion, I'm the greatest and, and best and I have achieved everything. But you know, we know it's a, it's a construct. Mm. It's a construct that keeps the machinery going the way it is going. Mm. So if anyone puts a finger on, on their forehead and, and thinks more than five minutes about, you know, what is really the um, purpose of, of us <laughs> here and the whole life, what are you going to do with a billion when you make it? You're going to, instead of having a, a 50 meter boat, you are going to buy yourself a hundred meter and you're going to buy three private jets and whatever. Um, so what? Um, yeah, so short answer, yes. I, I, I'm a strong believer in socialism. And I believe, unless we destroy the planet and ourselves, we we will end up in a in a some kind of communism eventually through a socialism as a as a stage. So, and you know, if I look at, for example, at New Zealand, even Australia, Australia by the standards of, of early capitalistic countries, is a socialist state. Because you know you have a 37-hour work week, um, you know you have public libraries, parks, transport, Medicare. That wasn't. I don't think that was part of the script when the capitalism was in the in the early days of capitalism. Well, it, um, it wasn't the case in this country until Gough Whitlam became prime minister in the early 70s. And, you know, Gough um, managed to push through a lot of those things because he was he was a big lefty. 
Um, he managed to drive through a lot of those things, which everyone uh, liked. They were like, oh, yeah, free education, free healthcare. This, this is good. Yeah. And they've been, you know, the, the conservatives have been trying to dismantle that for the last 20 odd years. But um, it certainly wasn't Australia pre golf, a lot of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I do think. You know, I, I think we've got a long way to go, and I think there's a lot of issues uh, Australia has, our treatment of Indigenous people, our treatment of asylum seekers, and et cetera, et cetera, just to name two. But um, I think we've we've got a pretty good model, um, you know, comparatively to many countries around the world. But, you know, we've got a long, long way to go. Okay, second and last question. Um, mm. Give me your final thoughts on Marshall Tito, seeing as that's really what we're supposed to be talking about. In retrospect, Marshall Tito, what's his what's his quick um, your summation of Marshall Tito, if mm. I can? Okay, um, I definitely see him as a very capable leader who has proven himself probably in the years um, leading to the Second World War, during the Second World War, um, that was probably his pinnacle. Um, once that was over, um, I suppose he, he just fell in the, in the usual trap, I suppose, of any um, long-standing leader. Uh, he got increasingly surrounded by people who were just feeding off his um, personality cult and and then basically um, they, they were they kept reinforcing that cult and he got lulled in, into that new role of um, you know being the father of the nation and and being loved and and appreciated by everyone and started believing that everything that that has been coming his way he deserved um you know human nature and uh, i think for the last i don't know how many years of, of his life he was uh, basically used probably more as a, as a puppet and and a cover for um, the cronies that um, grew up in the in the shadows and, and, and who you know, um, killed the country very soon after his death because um, couldn't agree among themselves who who's going to get the biggest share of the pie. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Well, my wife is in bed waiting for me to go and pleasure her, oh, Brad. So, um... <laughs> okay. Sorry to be uh, in your way there. Uh, I'm, I'm switching off. But I definitely enjoyed the um, conversation, Kim, and um, yeah, it, it took us a while to, to connect and it, 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 there was a moment where I thought to myself, I'm, I'm a reasonably intelligent person, but maybe my social intelligence is not that great and, and Kim is not responding. Maybe I'm not paying enough respect to a famous podcast and, you know, instead of saying it once, well, Kim, you just say the time and I'll be there. I was, oh, yeah, I can do it here and there. And, you know, so I wasn't sure whether I was actually offending you. Not at all. I've just uh, got a lot on my plate, O'Brien. That's all, man. And I don't, 
I'm so far behind in emails that, uh, yeah, I miss things a lot, but, um, I really appreciate you reaching out and coming on. It's uh, it's a, it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you. It, my, my too. Uh, I really enjoy uh, listening to you. Um, all the podcasts that I'm, I'm, I'm following. Um, and, um, you know, you re- may, you may have forgotten. Uh, I wrote that, um, um, review of the of the bullshit filter when you sent me a cup uh, i really felt so refreshed and uh, energized listening to you i think you were speaking about socialism or something like that and um, yeah so i can only thank you for everything that you do i think you're doing a great job and i think this world needs more podcasters like you Oh, thank you, Brad. I'll go tell my wife you said that, and maybe, <laughs> maybe she will <laughs> she will pleasure me back. More, more likely, she'll just roll her eyes and say, "Shut up and get down there between my legs." So anyway. Well, it sounds like a win-win in any case. It, it is. <laughs> thanks, mate. Take care of yourself. Okay. Cheers. Yeah. Bye. Thanks, Kim. Bye. curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 